Hello and welcome to Real Bible Stories. Join us as we deep dive into the historic, religious, cultural, political, and emotional context surrounding the real lives of real people in the Bible and the stories we've all grown to love. Welcome back to Real Bible Stories. And in, uh, if you, if you listen to last week, you'll know why I'm about to do this, but, uh, I'm your host, Imran, and you're joined by my wife, Selena, and our teacher, Ryan Brown. Hey. What's up, everybody? <laughs> if you don't get it, go back to the last episode. You should have watched it anyway, and you can come back and listen to this one. But um, we are happy to be with you today or this week um, as we get, well, we continue with uh, conversations with Jesus. This week, we are going to be talking about... Would you say it's his first miracle or just his first kind of display of power? First miracle. Okay. So Jesus' first miracle. So um, I will tell you, coming up, I had no idea the order by which these miracles took place. Zacchaeus could have been first. It could have, I mean, from all I knew, his crucifixion, you could have started with the crucifixion and that opened up his ministry. And then he did three years of ministry and then he left. Um, but now uh, we're going to actually talk about his first miracle, which happened at a wedding. It did. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to hand it off to, you want Selena to read first? You want to hit a point first? Selena, why don't you read it first? All right, so we're going to read about the wedding first and then we'll get into it. Yeah, so we're turning to chapter, I mean, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory, and his di- and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Thank you so much, Selena. So, um, I guess two things. Um, so, there's a show called The Chosen that's out there. I think I brought it up like 15 episodes ago. Actually, that, that we might have talked about it already, but um, it does a I think a great depiction of the wedding of Cana. And, um, so Selena and I watched that episode first and then we went into Bible study with Ryan a few months ago and he was going through the wedding of Cana and we were like, Oh, I can kind of see it all playing out in my head. Oh, I I get it. It all makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then now coming into the podcast, now I'm excited to, uh, kind of just go through it again and get some additional context as we continue to go through it. And then also to let you know about our Facebook page. So if you look up real Bible stories on Facebook, Please go ahead, like the page, share it with a friend, share the podcast with a friend, share it with someone who needs to hear it. Um, And then also, 
the website. So you can get a link to the overall kind of podcast website where we'll be posting different merchandise sales and um, additional kind of information about the podcast. And I'm also going to talk about Palms Baptist Church. So they have been supporting us since the beginning uh, to do this Real Bible Stories podcast. If you're in the 29 Palms area, come check us out. Check out their Facebook page, Palms Baptist Church. Um, But I think that's hits all the things we need to hear. So let's go in and get into our first point. Cool. So um, we're back in John. Um, Much of this series is in the Gospel of John, because if you never noticed before, um, the Gospel of John is very conversational and it's very relational. Um, So, you know, one of the the characteristics of the Gospel of John that I like, and this in particular story, this is in John chapter two. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but the Gospel of John is very much organized in a way that it is not chronological. Um, so things that happen at the beginning of John are actually occurring at the end of Jesus's life. Things that are happening at the end were more at the beginning because he's not building a chronological story for us. He's building a theological story for us. Which book would be the most chronological then? Um, well, Luke is very geographical, so he, he keeps it pretty close to, ge- uh, to the chronology of time. Mm-hmm. But there's some times where he, he doesn't compromise time for the geography. There's just times he omits the time for the sake of the geography. Com- yeah. Communicating his geographical, um, you know, uh, bias, but I don't say bias, but, um, Point. focus. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, I mean, of all of them, I would say Matthew, Mark is very chronological, but Mark is very like in your face to the point. It's very short. See Jesus, see Jesus. Run. Yeah. 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 It, it's just like, it's fantastic. By the way, if you haven't read the book of Mark and you're wondering, like it, I, I want to understand the gospel is, concisely or as quickly as possible. Um, I read Mark on a day of duty. Yeah, like, it, it, so I'm in the, I'm in the Marine Corps. And so we stand duty 24 hour post. I read it through the night. It took me like three hours, three and a half hours to read through the entire book of Mark. So you yeah, can do it's it. very, um, there's like an immediacy behind the gospel of Mark. It's yeah. just like urgency, right? Like there's just concise to the point. But it's so um, beautiful. It's, but it's yeah, I would say very Luke, easy to understand. Luke and Matthew though are, are pretty, are, are, are chronological. Okay. There's just mm-hmm. times where, like Luke omits um, the time because where it sits geographically within his, his structure, but but John is not that way. So like this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So up to this point, we are kind of chronological in the sense that um, we start off with John the Baptist, and then Jesus comes in, um, and then he goes right up to um, Cana for a wedding. And then this mm-hmm. is really kind of like how he starts his ministry. Cause in the, at the end of this, it says he goes to Capernaum and Capernaum was like on what we would call the route 66 oh. of Israel, where it sat on the primary trade route going anything into like Asia minor or anything coming from the port of uh, Caesarea. Like, so it was just this very central Northern point. When, when uh, I think of, of the sea of Galilee, when I think about 66, I think of a road that hits all the major cities as opposed to like an interstate where it's like, Super highway from big city to big city. So you're saying it's more like yeah, it's probably you're hitting all these yeah. key wickets as you go through. Yeah, like I guess you could yeah, like an interstate. But but you know the way roads were then, it was very trade oriented, right? Yeah, so, which makes sense. Yeah, so it's placed it's on a very important trade route. Like you mm-hmm. couldn't coming from that direction, like you could go the long way around, but it wouldn't make sense to unless you were um, 
you know, unless there's like a war going on or something. But, <laughs> but anyway, so where it's geographically located is very important. So that's where Jesus sets up his ministry when he's up in Galilee, he's in Capernaum, right? So this happens right before then. Um, but you know, the very next chapter, you got the the interaction with Nicodemus, which we'll probably hit one of these weeks, and that that happens probably in the last week of Jesus's life. That's in chapter three, right? Hmm. So um, with that, when we when we talk about this first miracle that Jesus gives, it, it's best to probably first start off with the point because it gives us the point of the entire uh, miracle and the story and, and this, the conversation that occurs here. And it's in verse 11. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Mm-hmm. So how did Christ reveal his glory? Glory is a big motif throughout the gospel of John um, and it's all pointing to the glorification of Christ, the glorification of Christ. Everything surrounds Christ's glory in the Gospel of John. So how is Christ glorified in, in, in John's Gospel? It's through the cross. The cross was the glory of Christ. So here it says that's how Christ revealed his glory was through the, cry, through the cross and then his resurrection, right? Here it says this is the first of the signs mm-hmm. through which he would reveal his glory. So this is a signpost to how Christ would reveal his glory. Okay. So we need to put this first, the purpose of this as it relates to the author and what he's trying to communicate is that he says, Hey, here is the first of his miracles, but that was a sign. He doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. I think that's interesting. He's like, yeah, this is, this isn't like a miracle or, or a, a, a wonder. This is a sign. Does he, he typically us. refer to those things as signs or mm-hmm. does later on he calls John, things he mi- miracles? No, and John, it's it's, it's all, all signs. signs. Interesting. So, so the miracle supported the mission, the point, right? And we've talked about this before. A lot of people, when we like, when you study and you read the stories of Jesus's miracles, you read it as like the just miracles, the great point. things he did. Yeah, like the miracle is the point. Yeah. Yeah. Where if you actually go study it, what you'll find is the miracle usually precedes um, a teaching, meaning. Um, Jesus is teaching something and he's, he's teaching something spiritual mm. and then to make, to, as an, an assistance to help them believe, to like help affirm the point to affirm what he's teaching. He then does this demonstration, this act of power. I'm um, showing his power and authority over things. Mm. I think so we saw that last confidence week with, in what he's teaching, right? We saw that last week with Lazarus. That was a very, yeah, that that's you, another good point, right? It's 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 to the point of what he is trying to teach them, mm-hmm. and it's affirming that that's the point, not the miracle itself, right? Yeah. So what John does is he recognizes that he says, no, 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 the, the miracle is not the point; it's a sign to what the point is, and then what the point is is the glory of Jesus, right? So that that, that is ultimately, you know, the, the the point. So just to have that out in the, the beginning, because as we start thinking through why Jesus did things the way he did, what it represents. There's a lot of symbology that, that is present here. So back to the beginning then, uh, what we kind of just call the setting here. It says that on the third day, a wedding take took place at Cana in Galilee. Um, so we've talked about this before. I, I can't remember precisely which episode we did, but um, John starts off his gospel structuring creation week. So, oh, okay. Um, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word was God. Mm-hmm. Um, in him was the, um, um, was the light and the light was the life of men. 
um, or, or in him was the life, the, uh, was the life of men, and he was the light of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Mirroring Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and, and, and he works his way. So here, he's following that same motif. This is chapter 2, and he says, now on the third day, okay. a wedding took place. Okay, so the way, he, the reason John puts this story at this place in the gospel is because it's on the third day of creation in terms of what his model is to begin the gospel, okay? And there's a reason he does that. The first thing you need to know, if you go read Creation Week, what happens on the third day? Do you guys remember? He separates the land from the sea. That's right. Yeah, he separates. (laughs) And and then um, fruit is produced from the land, Mm -hmm. okay? So you have a, a gathering of water, and then it producing fruit. Okay. Is this the is this where we also talk about the first mikvah? This is. Yes, okay. and that comes in that that becomes very relevant here in a second. Mm-hmm. Um so here when it says it was on the third day, um that's a Tuesday. So on a Tuesday in creation week is like you said the separation of land and water produced fruit, but it's also known as the day of double blessing. It's the only day of creation week that God blesses twice. Do you know that? Hmm. So there's one day he doesn't bless at all. And there's one day he blesses twice. You know what one day he doesn't bless? Saturday, Friday, no. Monday. Monday. I remember you that. remember this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Monday. You have biblical precedent to have a case <laughs> of the Mondays. Um, God does not bless Monday, but he blesses Tuesday twice. So on the day of double blessing, so um, <laughs> it was the day of double blessing. So most Hebrew weddings occurred on Tuesday. So there was always a um, it was a week long feast, right? That that the that when you'd have a wedding, the groom would come get his bride, and for an entire week, you'd have a week long feast that started on Tuesday, because Tuesday was the day of double blessing, and they wanted there to be the maximum amount of blessing on a marriage. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yep. But what he's also logically. but what he's also doing though, in terms of a theological sense, what, what the author of John is doing mm-hmm. is that he is assigning Christ as the creator to things because on the third day he, he is not just separating life, but he's producing fruit. He's doing these creative acts. So there he corresponds that third day of creation um, to, to creating in us a, a new, making us a new creation. Does that make sense? Um, mm-hmm. he, he's creating in us. A, he, he, Jesus is here and is, um, building a new creation of things, a new order of things that this isn't, um, this isn't something like the old, this is something new entirely. He's creating something new just as he did as creator all the way back at the beginning, um, of the world in Genesis. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, another important thing to know about this is that, so on, because Tuesdays were the day of double blessing, um, you know, blessing was the key piece there, right? Well, biblically, wine had always been symbolized blessing and joy. So just like a couple of references there, Amos chapter 9. So biblically, wine symbolizes blessing and joy. Yes. All right. So when I drink wine, I am blessed and joyful. Is that? Well, that's (laughs) probably part of why they made that association, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's actually funny you say that because uh, we will talk about it um, later about that whole kind of debate. You know, should, oh, yeah. should be believers be drinking and, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, the, there's a Psalm where it says that wine makes the heart glad, mm-hmm. makes the, the heart joyful. Right. Ah. Um, so, 
So in Amos chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, in Joel 3, 18, um, and even in the actual traditional rabbinical teachings, um, there's a heavy emphasis that wine is representative of blessing. So mm-hmm. just to hit the setting here, right? You're a wedding starting on the day of double blessing, Tuesday, and there's wine that represents blessing at the mm-hmm. center of this story. Yeah. Right? So you see how this entire thing is shaping up first, kind of really be anchored on the blessing, right? The blessing of the marriage, um, of the wedding specifically, but also large, you know, in, in a larger sense, theologically, the blessing that Christ will bring. Okay. okay. So you got two plays here. You, you got the theological being played out through the literal in terms of the story as a sign to what Christ is going to accomplish. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what you were just mentioning, uh, Imran, was that the first mikvah, which, oh, about which, the first mikvah, which is the Hebrew for baptism, mm-hmm. occurs on day three. Because um, mikvah... Day lit- three of creation. Day three of creation, yes. Because yeah. uh, mikvah literally means a, a gathering of water. Right, so there is a gathering of water. There's yeah. a mikvah. So when you when it talks about getting baptized in baptismo, right, which is the the Greek for for mikvah, it's literally talking that you go to a gathering of water and you submerge yourself in mm-hmm. this gathering of water. So just as there was a mikvah, a gathering of water, um, during creation week, and then from that gathering of water, it produced fruit. Here, what you're going to see. And, um, and Jesus's first miracle is a mikvah in the jars. There's going to be a gathering of water and a producing of fruit, i.e. the wine. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. See see how, and and here's the thing is that Jesus says, um, I I can only do what I've seen my father do. So nothing that Jesus actually does in terms of power is new, is, is unique compared to something that hasn't already been demonstrated beforehand. Okay, isn't that interesting? So when you see this miracle being played out in the jars, well, where has he seen his father do this before? At creation, right? There was a gathering of water, and then land appeared, and he produced fruit out of what? Out of nothing. Mm -hmm. He's the creator. So he literally just had this microcosm of creation occur in these water jars where he has this gathering of water and a producing of fruit that mixed together to make the wine. That's such a beautiful way of representing what happened there. I, I, and now the opposite of that. I remember, uh, um, it's like a Marine told me, it's like, it's like, Jesus must have been a party animal. Cause he over, over, he's turning water to wine, you know, and passing all around. It's like, it's like, well, th- yes. But at the same time, this is a much more beautiful way of it. Kind of interpreting that. Well, that theologically, point. that's what's kind of being communicated. Right. Practically though, I would agree with them. Do you realize that every, so when we talk about the law and what the Jewish authorities had done to it, they put fence around fences, around fences, around fences to protect it so much that they actually missed the blessing that the law was supposed to give. So mm-hmm. in Leviticus 23, he gives us the seven assigned um, or the appointed times and the appointed feasts. Okay. Mm-hmm. These are what you have to do. Um, on these days, you know, when it comes to Sabbath, um, when it comes to the Feast of First Fruits, when it comes to the Feast of Tabernacles, like all those feasts, right? But if you read it in Leviticus 23, most of those feasts, with the exception of really like the Day of Atonement, which is like the fasting feast, the painful feast, mm. but all the other feasts 
all God is essentially telling you to do is stop working, hang out with your friends and family, spend time together, eat food, yeah. and party. I like that. It's literally yeah. God just telling you, you need, I, I am setting, I'm telling you to set time apart to get with friends and family and party. Enjoy mm-hmm. one another. Right? So in, in one sense, that is absolutely an accurate statement because um, it is a lot of wine. We'll, we'll get to the numbers here in a second. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll get to all that in good time. So so with that context, um, let's talk about the problem behind what's going on here. So it says that Jesus was invited to uh, this wedding in Cana. And it says, now, and this is the latter end of verse one, going into verse two, it says, Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. So um, we, we kind of talked about how the fact that the day of double blessing, wine represents blessing, and now they're running out of wine. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean in, in terms of um, the honor of the marriage and of, the, of the, um, the wedding itself? It's a very shameful thing. Mm-hmm. This is day one of the wedding, and they're running out of wine. It's kind of crazy. And how long did you say it was supposed to be the ceremony? Oh, we It was a week-long week. feast. Okay. It, day one, they're already running out of wine. Um, Are we going to talk about, I don't remember if we talked about it separately or if it was in the Bible study of like why they may have ran out of wine. Yes, we'll talk about that in a second. Okay, let me not reveal the Um, But I first just want to note this though, is that culturally, that is a very shameful and embarrassing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, In in the time of the Maccabees, we talk about the Maccabee revolution, that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So when when the Maccabees had won the revolution against against, uh, Greece and they were in charge for that time before Rome came in, in that time, you could be fined for running out of wine at a wedding. At your own wedding. Just like you could be fined in Jesus' day for, if, if you were observed to not participate in a wedding procession, whether yeah. you knew the groom or not, you were required by law to participate in that, right? Um, the same goes for running out of a wedding. It would have been really embarrassing and shameful. And what the Jewish society, the way they kind of viewed it was this, is that if you're running out of blessing wine, on the first day of the wedding feast, this marriage is going to run out of blessing mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end of next week. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Um, so it's very dishonoring and we're going to very embarrassing, right? That's the ultimate <laughs> yeah. problem. So let's just kind of t- talk about your, your question, right? So how did they run out of wine on the first day? Why was it so soon? Okay. So here's a couple of options I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you what I believe to be the most probable. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really kind of what I think that the text gives us. But the first is this, is that it could have happened just because the, the, the bride and the groom were very poor. The families were poor. So um, you, you could have had um, more people show up than anticipated. They don't have a lot of money, and they're like, we're already almost out of wine, right? I have a, I have a question. That wasn't the person that was getting married related to Jesus? We'll talk about that in a second. Way? You keep jumping ahead, man. See, I thought you this said is why that- you need to stop going to my Bible studies when we do the podcast. <sighs> you remember all the tidbits, but you know, you, it's a, uh, yes, we'll get to I think I remembered band. that from the chosen, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about that in, in, in a second. Okay. So, so the first possibility is that the, the, the groom and the bride could have been and their families could have been really poor. Um, I think that is improbable for two reasons. One is you see six stone jars and we'll talk a little more about that in a bit. Oh yeah. But, Stone jars that they're taught describing here are very expensive, mm-hmm. let alone to have six of them. Mm-hmm. 
and to get six of them just for a wedding, um, unless wow. something else is going on, which we'll talk about, but right. There's another piece to that. But the other thing is that there's also hired servants. So if you were, I guess in their view, they would have rather had enough wedding to last the feast and they would have had hired servants to support the wedding. Yeah. So the fact that they Which had hired, sense. right. So the fact that they had hired servants means they, they, they assume they had enough right, or they right. planned to have enough wine. Correct. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was a money problem. Right. Um, the second is that there was vastly a lot of overindulgence on the first, on the first night. So that's the second possibility. That's the second, but I also think that's improbable. Mm. Um, but it's essentially is like we have, we have allocated this much wine to last the entire feast. And you're telling like, do they have a bunch of Marines like attend this <laughs> wedding to where it was like, there was a ship in, in port. And yeah. I mean, did you, did you hear about what happened in, um, uh, I'm trying to, it was back in Norway to the, the Marine ex- exercises this like two or three years ago. No, um, maybe describe but a little they, more of it. They literally drank all the beer in, in the town. <laughs> For this, for this exercise that, that they were doing in That's Norway, awesome. yeah, they they literally drink the entire town dry. Wow, um, man, it, it was kind of a big well, deal. Um, besides, they were flush with cash for the winter. So. Yeah, I guess. Well, <laughs> the, the um, I mean, also we haven't had the Marine Corps ball for like two or three years. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> this this November is going to be ridiculous, a crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad I'm not going to have to be there for that one. That one, those, those things get crazy, anyways. Um, yeah. So besides the point, so. Um, I think that is improbable, not just because in terms of that, that is some substantial overindulgence, mm-hmm. but it also would have been improper. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the, the amount of wine here in a second, but, mm-hmm. um, I just don't think it's a probable reason. Um, what I think is probably the most probable is that more people showed up than expected. Well, isn't the wedding an invite only though? Like, isn't that like, no, we learned about this today. Well, to join the you you have to give okay. You need to give some context for that statement you just made. Oh man, (laughs) 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 we learned about today with the ten versions. Yeah, give some context. Uh, So Ryan, Ryan taught. I think we talked about it last week that Ryan is going to preach on Sunday. So if you remember a couple episodes ago, we did um, parables of Jesus. One of them was the parable of the ten virgins. Ryan taught on the parable of the ten virgins today, and one of the points he brought up was that if you saw a wedding processional procession taking place and you were a member of that town or that community, you were obligated by law to partake in the wedding procession processional. You couldn't ignore it or you could be fined for that because the wedding was an important community event. Yes. Is that the but same guess, thing though? But that's as the procession. Like sitting down. That's the procession. Not, yeah. not, not the wedding feast though. Correct. But the procession yeah. to, you have to the feast. Calculate numbers like, okay, how many people do we need to feed? And of course, like how much wine do we need to get? So, would it be appropriate to just show up at a wedding? Like I know even in today's culture, like that's, well, this, this is, this is what I think the good. problem, I think the text tells us. So you're right. You had mm-hmm. to be invited to the feast. Yeah. Um, and it says in verse two and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. Um, <laughs> there's, there's some other things going on there that, that we'll talk about here in a second, but, but, but they were invited, but you got to remember right before this, mm-hmm. um, and, and in terms of the, the chrono, the chronology of Jesus's ministry is that John the Baptist was the, the religious celebrity. Everybody had heard about John the Baptist and John the Baptist is preparing the way for Christ. Mm-hmm. So when Christ comes on the scene, he says, that's the man I've been preparing the way for whose sandals. I am not fit to, uh, to tie. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, so when John, does that Jesus inherits immediately many of John's disciples. 
So okay. when a wedding invitation goes out to Jesus saying, hey, you and the disciples, your students mm-hmm. that, that have been following you, which probably by the time when he had, they sent that invitation uh, out, he probably had maybe none, but maybe, and you know, obviously there was probably some awareness of okay. disciples, but they probably didn't realize that he just inherited much of John's disciples. Okay. So when he comes mobbing into this wedding, yeah. we're not talking about Jesus and his 12 friends. That's exactly we're, what I was thinking. I was like, oh, the 12 disciples. I just kind of like no, automatically. We're, we're like, talking 12. about his, all his disciples. So, so okay. Jesus may have caused this problem. That exactly. He is. Huh. Jesus and his disciples very much could have probably been the source of this problem. And that, that'll make sense here in a second as we keep reading. But he is probably the source of the problem. He, he, he mobbed in with all these disciples. So people drank what they would have been expected to drink, yeah. but they did not expect Jesus to have as many disciples as he did when they sent the invitation out. But that mm-hmm. was so important for his disciples to be there because by the end of the story, we know like then they believed. It was then that they believed. And that's yeah. actually what he's, he's teaching in mm-hmm. this story. Um, in fact, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it more at the end, but the only people who are aware of this miracle was Jesus, his mother, his disciples, and the servants. They were the only people who were aware of what occurred here. Um, so, so because Jesus' newfound disciples all were invited and they would have been big, he's probably contributing to that problem, right? And um, that's why when Jesus' mother comes and she says, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, right? She's being very culturally polite by like not commanding her very, her full grown son to do something mm-hmm. that would have been improper in those days. But she's very much imploring Jesus like, Hey, you come mobbing here with, with <laughs> all your football buddies. You drink up all the wine. Now okay. they have no more wine. And now the bride and the groom are about to be dishonored. I remember she's bringing we, we, him the problem. I remember right? we uh, talked about that. She wouldn't, would she have even been allowed to command him in that way? Allowed. I mean, it's 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 his mother, but it would have been a grown it, it would have been considered improper. Okay, right. It would have been considered improper because he's a grown man, yeah. And just the placement of how women were in that society just would have been viewed mm-hmm. as improper, right? Now, and when we went over this with the, the woman at the well, like Jesus didn't really care that much about um, he didn't like cultural norms. Yeah, about like what was considered culturally proper, improper, if it meant it was going to hinder him from being effective in his ministry. Yeah. Right. And we actually see some interesting dynamics happen here between him and his mother, which is really what this conversation which, is which about. Which an interesting point is like how many people let cultural norms actually hinder their own ministry right. and their own witness. So right. something to think about. And, and there's a time where you, you honor it um, in the sense that you don't want to be the source of constant contention Right. There's just this, yeah, that's the whiny Christians over here. They just, they're never satisfied with anything, right? They're always causing a ruckus. But there is a time where you say, yeah, but that norm is hindering the efficacy of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Then you should ignore it, right? But there's other times you should honor it so that you're not um, viewed as somebody who is trying to come in and just tear down everything, but you're actually coming in to help, right? Um, and we'll get into that in a second. But, um, but the bigger question here, though, culturally, and, and this is my question, right? Um, but just understanding kind of the dynamics of the, of the wedding is, is that who was responsible for the hospitality of a wedding? What do you mean when you say hospitality? Who was responsible know. for putting the banquet on? Okay, for well, literally the building. Okay, parents. The groom, the the, the family of the groom. Mm-hmm. 
They yeah, we want- talked about that. We talked about how weddings worked a few episodes ago, which is definitely one of my favorite episodes. Oh, I can't remember the top top of my head, but just really just we spent like, like that, 20 that was minutes. Actually the same parable that I preached on today. It was the 10 versions. Yeah, the parable one? of the 10 versions. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because uh, we we spent like 20 minutes just talking about this is how a wedding in Jewish culture works and why it parallels it, yeah. the um how how God describes his relationship how with he the church. Yeah. Right. So so what's interesting here is that it was the Yes, yeah, so it was the groom's family responsible for putting on the feast, and it was their responsibility for the hospitality of it all, right? So with that said, how does Mary, Jesus' mother, know they're running out of wine? Right? Like, Because um, it's not just that she has a knowledge that, hey, because that would have been an embarrassing thing. That, that would have been an mm-hmm. embarrassing thing. You're not just going to go tell your guest, hey— we're almost going to be out of wine. We're almost out of wine let's, and stay one of, 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 <laughs> of the, the feast, drinking. right? Like you're not going to announce it because of how embarrassing that is, right? Um, so a guest would just not have been made aware, like a general guest, right? So um, her knowledge of this implies that she has, in some sense, a responsibility in the hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, if not explicitly, there's kind of like implied responsibility, even with you know the the bride's family, in a sense, because. Yeah. Her honor's at stake too. Mm. She also right? commands the servants too. She does. Oh yeah. Which she, she, which seems she shouldn't she has, have been able to do. She has some authority over the servants. So why does she have authority over the servants? Family. She's just a guest, like unless she's just a really obnoxious person. <laughs> and who, the who's servants are okay, willing to do whatever. Right. Who's putting her nose into everything? <laughs> oh, they don't have any wine. I guess everyone has. That They're running out of wine too, though. Servants come here and just starts like, I, I "Hey, mean, lady, what are you doing?" Everyone's I, got I'm, that on her uncle. That's <laughs> yeah, that's right? definitely. Sometimes it's me. I'm that guy. Sometimes <laughs> in this situation, <laughs> try not to be that guy. That that guy annoys people, right? Uh, yeah. I don't think Until Mary. Solved. I don't think Mary's that person though. Right. Um, Mary, um, everything you know about her character that we read and what we continue to read here, mm-hmm. that 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 is not kind of her character. Um, so. With that said, then, it kind of begs the question then, right? How does she know? Um, it almost implies that she is at the very least related to either the groom or the bride, mm-hmm. which then by extension means Jesus would have been related to either the groom or the bride. So right? now we've highlighted two things that Jesus is, relate, could, is probably related to the bride or groom and then also... Um, he probably caused the problem in the first place with all his the source of the pro- problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, kind of backed him into a corner with this one. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we can let's talk about because there's been a, many views of whose wedding this was. Um, so the 13th century Greek scholar, um, I'm going to probably mess this name up, but uh, Nisiphorus Callistus, um, his view was that this wedding. Um, was the wedding of Jude, Jesus's brother, who is also, you hmm. know, authors of one of the books of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and he references a, a library that is no longer in existence. So there was a, um, and I don't know where the library was, but there was a library. He said he was a Greek scholar. He was a Greek scholar, so a Greek theologian. The Romans went through and burned a lot of their libraries. Right. So that so there was takes a, there, care of that, I guess. So there was a library that existed that, that, he, he's referencing this library that says that Jude, this was Jude's wedding, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't exist anymore. You can't really, you just get that from his writings of what he's referring to. Or like, hey, he keeps referencing this library that nobody's ever found, right? Yeah. It may still be out there. We may find it someday. It would be really cool. Um, the Romans destroyed so much of the Greeks' libraries. I'm so 
So it is what it is. Anyway, the sorry. problem with the view, though, that this is Jude's wedding, mm-hmm. Jesus' brother, is that the wedding is happening in Cana. So everything we know is that. Okay, where's we're, Cana? We're, Cana is in Galilee, and okay. Cana is about probably, I think, 12 miles to the southeast of Nazareth. Okay. So it's up there in that kind of cluster of villages up there in Galilee. But what we know, though, is that Jesus' family was rooted in Bethlehem and Nazareth, mm-hmm. right? Um, so because of that, um, again, if this if Jude was the groom, you would go prepare a place for your bride on, to- on your father's home or on oh, your father's yeah. property, right? Mm-hmm. So you would... You would expect this wedding to be occurring in either Nazareth or in Bethlehem. Okay. Does that make sense? So, I mean, and and of course, we come up with these rules of what we know culturally, right? Mm -hmm. But just like today, there's always like, you know what I mean? There's bending of rules, right? Not Mm -hmm. everything always happened that cleanly. You know what I'm saying? Of course. Um, So a couple of explanations for that, though. If it was his brother, because um, there was ways you could get to that being the possibility. One is this, is that Joseph is dead, which is very well assumed that by the time Jesus starts his ministry, his father is already, is already dead. And a lot of that also is, is due to the fact of who Joseph was, who should have been at that time the rightful king of Israel. Now that he's dead, Jesus being the firstborn mm. be the rightful king. would be the rightful king. So when he comes on the scene... You, you have the rightful king of Israel coming forward, starting this ministry. Now he's performing miracles, and that's how they're like, hey, I think the some, Messiah's here. Like, he's about ready to, we're, this is about to change, I right? I think something interesting to note is that um, even Jesus Christ uh, follows in the same, like, Batman, Superman logic of, or, or Disney, Disney main character logic where, you know, dead parents. You can't be great unless your your parents pass away. So, but so Joseph passed away. And, I'm going to turn that around on you. Sure. Jesus doesn't follow the paradigm of Disney. Disney uh, follows the yeah, paradigm yeah, 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 yeah. of the gospel. And we, I'm, sorry, this is actually a real thing, though. Is you see a lot of the fairy tales and a lot of the, um, particularly the older Disney stories, actually follow the gospel model. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. They just tell it different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what you see now coming out of Disney is not the same, but. Um, but besides the point, so now it's coming out Disney. So possible explanations for this is that because Joseph is dead, where you would usually go build your home, right? Um, you, you could say, well, my father's passed away, so the father of the bride hosted the feast, which is an absolute possibility, mm-hmm. right? Um, usually, you would go there. Um, the other thing that could have happened was that, um, in a very practical sense, because we know that Jesus' family was very modest in terms of wealth and, and income mm-hmm. that their home was not big enough to host a, a party like this. Okay. So it happened elsewhere. Right. And maybe because of it's, it's geographically so close to Nazareth, you know, they could have gone down there. Um, you know, that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. What's also interesting though, is that if Joseph is dead and Jesus is the firstborn, who is now the head of the household? The one that brought the problem to the party. No, Jesus. Who's the firstborn? Uh, that the firstborn son takes over as head of the household. Yeah, Joseph's dead. That means Jesus is the head of that household now. Um, it's what they call the ketubah. Um, the what? Ketubah is the name of the head of the household. That's the name of the responsibility in in in, in Jewish culture. Um, the responsibility in ketubah is that 
you're the firstborn son, your father dies, you are now, you inherit 50% of all his property and you are the head of the house. Your, your younger brothers split the other 50% evenly, um, the other 50% of the inheritance. Mm-hmm. You as the firstborn in Ketubah, you, you now assume the responsibility of the leader and the head of the house. So Ketubah is the process or Ketubah is the title of head of household? Ketubah is the concept. Okay. Yeah. He, Hebraic, they view conceptually, right? Okay. Um, so the firstborn, so the thing about Jesus, though, is that at this time, he's also entering into ministry. Um, very much like a rabbi would go entering into ministry, so he would have surrendered his ketubah, uh, meaning I'm supposed to be the head of the household, yeah. but I'm going into ministry, I surrender this. So that's the thing rabbis were expected to do. It's what they commonly did. Okay. Yeah. Um, how are you supposed to take over the family business and, and manage all that when you're actually supposed to be doing rabbinical things, okay. right? So you have to pick. Um, you choose the path. So so with That's really interesting. that point, because he relinquished it, um, that could have meant Jude here, which I don't think it was Jude, because um, I think who really takes over um, after Jesus is James. His brother James would have then assumed the ketubah. Mm. Um, so this could have been at James' home, which may have landed in Cana because for work or whatever, maybe it drew him to Cana, right? Okay. So there's a lot of different possibilities that surround this, right? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one view that this so is Jesus' brother. You know, it's his wedding. You know, historically, some viewed it as Jude using essentially resources that are no longer available to us. Other people have posited that this was the wedding of Jesus himself. And that's because they're Who really- are these other people? They are try- liberal people who are trying to fit <laughs> a, s- a square peg in a round hole, right? Yeah. Because um, they completely gloss over what it says in what, when verses you say, one and two, where it says Jesus and his disciples were invited, invited. to this wedding. So, I, I oh, thank you for sure. my own wedding <laughs> invitation. If it's my wedding, right? I just want to make sure when you so when you say liberal people, we don't we're not talking about um, like liberals from a political perspective. You're talking about people that Lib- are being very liberal, liberal with the word. I'm. I'm talking about very liberal theologians and liberal scholars yeah. within that field. Okay. They're, they're considered liberal because that has never really been the conservative or traditional point of view in terms of hermeneutics mm-hmm. of that piece of text. Okay. But just yes, like me with the ten virgins, this one make right, sure yeah, we're not we, like, we are not the talking liberals. <laughs> like, uh, no, yeah. that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about the dictionary definition of liberal. Voters, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they, they, they for some reason think Jesus was married. Yeah, no, that's not what we're talking. about. That is not what we're talking about. So, I just want to, I find that view to be absolutely ridiculous, just because of the text itself, right? Yeah. Some have said that it's the author of the gospel itself, which is traditionally attributed to the the apostle. John. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that is certainly possible that the groom is never mentioned. His name is never mentioned in the story. Um, but that is actually very, um, that, that is very common for, for the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Um, the writer of John, even the writer of John says in the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he never names himself. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because the entire gospel is surrounding the glory of Christ mm. because it's surrounding the glory of Christ. He doesn't want anybody to include himself as the author to receive any sort of glory unnecessarily do that would take away from Christ. Mm-hmm. He only mentions the name when it's relevant 
to the function of the story of, of, of what he is communicating. And even then he refers that himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Right. Well, from, of himself, but yeah. But like, you know, he mentions Lazarus by name, Mary and Martha by name. Oh, okay. But he doesn't mention the bridegroom or the groom here because it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. That's not the point of what he's making to, to the sign of Christ revealing his glory, right? To the point of this entire text, the groom's name doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's omitted. But Thomas Aquinas, um, who's one of my favorite, um, I mean, theologians, I mean, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but... If you ever want some heavy, fun reading, go read Summa Theologica. It, it, it is um, How, What amazing, generation is he from? Uh, like 14th. Oh, gosh. Let's see. He was part of the Dominican order. So that would have been about the 14th, 15th century. Oh, okay. But he, he was brilliant. I mean, um, really, I mean, they talk about you had Plato and Socrates. Then you have... Um, Augustine of Hippo, then you have Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. in terms of the, the 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 intellectual powerhouses across centuries, like those four. Right, um, man was brilliant. He, he he makes a logical argument for the existence of a creator with very limited scientific knowledge that they had in those days. But he but he uses this formulates this entire idea behind the unmovable object that mm. anything that that is. Everything's in motion, right? And that requires a cause. Something had to put things in motion, right? And he just makes these very um, logical arguments. And read it. It's called Summa Theologica. It, huh. it's, you could honestly get it on your Amazon Kindle for free. It's a free book. Um, okay. Cool. It's deep, right? Like it's, it's not easy reading. But anyways, but Thomas Aquinas believed this was at the, the Apostle John's wedding. That was what he had, had put forward. Um, with that said, though, I disagree with Thomas Aquinas on this. This is my view, um, which you take it as you will. But I believe this is the sister of Jesus' wedding. Um, one, it makes sense why it places the wedding in Cana, but near their home. Because um, it's not going back to the family home. It's going to the home of the groom. Um, so the groom's family would have bore responsibility. But remember... Like families came together to agree on marriage. Mm-hmm. They they had agreed on a dowry price. They they agreed on all those things, right? Um, so these families are are working together. They're they're intimately connected. They're getting integrated through this marriage. Um and the honor of the bride was just as much at stake as the honor of the groom. So while the groom's family would have been responsible for the hospitality. The, the family of the bride would have cared equally as much because yeah. they would get dishonored and shamed too. So it makes sense that in the course of this wedding, she was brought into the understanding that, hey, we're, we're, we're low on wine. My son and your daughter is about to be dishonored. This is about to be a very embarrassing thing for us. And knowing the character of Mary and how we, what we know of her through other stories, this would have very much probably... Um, pushed her to say, I need to help you, mm-hmm. right? She's not going to be like, well, that's your responsibility. You're the, the you're the the family of the groom, right? She, she would have said, yeah. let me help you. Hey, Jesus, come here. You just came in here with all your homeboys to drink <laughs> all the wine. You're part of this problem. I need your help fixing it. And because he's the head of the household, the oldest son, right? Ketuba, um, she's like, I need your help. I yeah. need you to help me fix this problem. I so. have a question. What is the function of the master of the feast? Is that like, a special guest? 
the master of the banquet. Yeah, like why is he so important that he had to like approve? It's just the quality. It's just a cultural thing, you know. It's kind of like um. Gosh, I'm like a guest of honor at a mess night. Yeah, it's it's kind of okay. So it's just it's just as similar as like kind of like the the one who officiates the wedding nowadays. Right, you, or you, even you, you needed the... somebody who is officiating the wedding ceremony. Mm. Like that's important, right? Um, he kind of serves that kind of functional role where it's just a different kind of culture, right? Yeah, the master of the banquet. There's somebody responsible for the the the, the conduct and the execution of a we, banquet because there's a lot of things. We have that food same food and wine, and you know, a lot we have of the same thing on. now. There's an M, an MC or. Um... Wedding or planner. a host, wedding planner, a wedding, but even more than that, like there's, there's a, even with the feast after weddings today, there's a host who's like, you know, and now we're going to have the yeah. first dance and now we're going to eat the food and now we're going to do that, this and now we're going to do that. And like, like they're anyone. responsible, but you designate them. Yeah. It's somebody who's designated. So you're right. So it's kind of like splitting the function of the DJ with like the function of like the wedding planner. If you can afford a wedding planner. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but if you could afford a wedding planner, that wedding planner is like, okay, DJ, this is the order of things. And they're making sure, hey, the food is being served on time, right? They're, they're coordinating all that. Okay. So the family can just enjoy the wedding, right? Yeah. So it's, so like it's kind of like the meshing those two things. tasting right? the wine first. Right. Or but sure it, it wasn't like a designated person like- In the community? Like the father is uh, the master or the cousin or it was just- Or that one guy like in the culturally? community is like, you're the master yeah, of, you're the master like, of oh, the ceremonies. I, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know who would have generally- been the master of the banquet. Okay. Yeah. That's a good question. Now it's going to be on my mind. I'm going to have to go find. I mean, Let us know. I'm going to be up until yeah. two in the morning now. <laughs> Thanks, Selena. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm like, why is it so important that he so has why to sit? Why are you reading Hebrew again? <laughs> um, so with that though, um, so Mary, because, and this is again, my view though, is that if this was Jesus's sister, um, she would not have the responsibility of providing the wine, but she certainly had a stake in it and she yeah, would have sure. had authority over the servants. Mm-hmm. Hey, that that is the mother of the bride. If she's telling mm-hmm. you to do something, you do it, right? Like that's just a, like, it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's what makes sense to me. So she, why does she bring the, the issue to Jesus? Um, again, option A, him and his disciples contributed to the problem. Come rolling in here and you drink up all the wine, right? Um, option B is that maybe... Jesus, this was just a polite invitation, family, friend, you know, whatever. Um, the heart of Mary paired with her knowing the heart and identity of who Jesus was, she knew who to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, now that, that sounds very romantic. It doesn't explain a lot of why she knew what she knew, right? Because up to this point, Mary is asking a very practical question of Jesus. She's not asking him to perform a miracle. Mm-hmm. She's asking him to help solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, you with all your friends, go figure out how to find more wine. Go carry it over here, right? Yeah. Help she, she, didn't, she didn't know how he was going to solve the problem. She was just like, you need to figure this out. Right. Before yeah. this runs out. Right. You got about an hour. We need <laughs> your help in a very practical sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think option B is really all that convincing. Um, um, option C is that he did bear cultural responsibility at the, as the head of the household if this was indeed like his brother. Right. So if this is his brother, he's the head of the house. She's coming to him. You're the head of this house who is responsible for the honor of your brother because your father is dead. You need to f- solve this problem. Yeah. Right. Our family's honor is at stake. 
Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, it could be a meshing of A and C, right? The thing that's fun about this story is that there is actually so many, like, depending on this view, we'll kind of veer off into these options. But if you have that view, there's these options, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a very integrated, you know, what we don't know. But don't let, this is fun. This is us talking Bible. But don't let, like, this the lack be- of clarity with all those things. Because... Exactly. Everything that was important about this event was communicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. The details that aren't provided, some are assumed that he may expect that his readers to know. But a lot of it, though, is like, but, but don't get That's lost. That's the hill in, you need to die on. Right. Don't get lost in that. Um, stay yeah. focused on what the, because like, ultimately. I can't in Jesus unless I know the name of the servants. And it's like, no, that's not the hill to die on, my friend. Right. So, but to that point, though, let's keep exploring a little bit because this is fun, right? Yeah. Um, there's some things we can deduce about the family who is hosting this wedding, okay? Whether this is Jesus's family, whether this is his sister's, you know, groom's family, or just somebody he knows, but what do we know about the family? So the first thing that we kind of get hinted in the narrative is that there were six stone jars, and they were used for ritual purification, right? Those are the six jars and the water in them that Jesus uses to um, um, turn the water into wine, right? So there's something interesting. In 2017, um, there was a stone jar quarry that was found in Lower Galilee. So up in that region where this wedding is taking place, there was a, a stone jar um, quarry that was found. Um, the quarry required the same kind of Roman tools that they used to make the, the, the tall pillars with. Okay. Right? The, the, the very iconic It was, it was Roman, complex. This is high. Right. Um, high quality, high quality stuff. Okay. Um, this is craftsmanship, but it's expensive, right? Yeah. This is expensive stuff. Um, one of the homes that they dug up um, that was destroyed when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, one of the homes that was burnt and, and destroyed in that home, they found, um, you know, coincidentally, six stone jars. Oh, and as they found more going around into that home, uh, they realized this was the home of a priest. And the reason why was because in Leviticus, um, let's see, what is it? Leviticus 11. Um, let's see, Leviticus 11, I have the reference here, verse 33 through 36. Mm-hmm. Um, only a spring or a stone jar will remain clean. All other vessels had to be broken after their use. So in other words, if you're using a clay pot for ritual cleansing, mm-hmm. then... Once you're done doing that cleansing, you had to smash the jar. The jar is unclean. You had to smash it. The only thing that remained clean constantly was from a fresh spring or from these stone jars. So what would happen is that the priest, usually through financing of the temple, Mm -hmm. would be given stone jars for ritual cleansing. I kind of want to just read it from Leviticus. Go, go, it's go always it. super interesting. You you love reading the Leviticus. I, I well this this one's not talking about um oh man crushed testicles crushed testicles <laughs> and if you don't get the reference you got to watch the prior episodes but your Bible talks about crushed testicles I'm gonna just leave it there at that but this is Leviticus eleven thirty three to thirty six um, and if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it any food in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean and all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean 
and everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken into pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whomever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. So it seems like it has a lot to do with sanitation. Yeah, a lot of the law is so, pretty is very logical. Like stone jars, like I wonder how that works. Depends. Like I mean, I would think it depends on the stone. Well, if it's non-porous, st- stone acts as a natural filter for water. Huh. If you, you guys ever know, Bear Grylls one on one. If you are thirsty and you're stuck in the wild, uh-huh. you find the, the water dripping down the rock. You, you drink that water because it acts as a natural filter with the minerals and stuff. Besides the point. But if you have a stone jar, how does it keep the water? clean this like is ritual how? cleansing though okay so essentially what it's saying is that if this is a perishable or a fragile thing it makes it the, the the i mean it is a lot of it is sanitary but it but in the context of this it's for ritual cleansing this the is the way for, they normally stored wine was in um sacks like skin sacks so, and they were single use and you would have to throw it away you couldn't put more wine after you fermented that wine in that um carcass sack you couldn't reuse it you had to destroy it and i guess i don't know i don't one. really understand the whole ritual cleansing like you have a stone jar and are you like how are you pulling the water or are you it's just essentially like, like washing your hands in the jar yes. but the jars weren't but a rich, how but does he's it saying, keep clean how does the jar like stay you're, clean you're dirty you stick your hands in this this isn't water jar. you drink this is water you wash your hands with and okay. what this is saying is that if you're washing your hands in, in a perishable type of vessel mm-hmm then after you wash your hands and go through that ritual, it, it's gone. You have, you have to crush it, destroy it, you have to do something else next time you do it. And because of the amount of rituals that priests would have to go through, yeah. they'd be provided with a stone jar so that when they... So they didn't just have to destroy it. Right. I, I can um, also, and, and there were some other things around that, like um, rabbinical teaching had like, they added things onto it, right? Like as always. So it was like... Yeah, it's unclean for that the rest of that day mm-hmm. or a week or something like that. So a lot of the idea that if you had six is that essentially one for each day. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? But so but the point you can here, also I was gonna like from a sciencey perspective, stone left out in the sun will will become pure because the sun's gonna kill all the bacteria and all that stuff. But if it's like a um cloth or something, the bacteria actually just builds up in the porous material. So like that, that stone is a lot easier to clean, a lot easier to maintain than any other material they would have had at that time. Any the clay or wood or any material they would have had. The stone is the only thing that you can actually make as clean as possible with the stuff that they but, had at that time. You, you're, you're getting lost in the sanitary aspect of this. Sure. This is a ritual aspect. Yeah, the, jo- the jar is for ritual. It's yeah. not it's for the that. same reason yeah. that um, sacrificing an animal right to pay for sin Mm-hmm. Did that really cover you for sin or was it symbolic of who was going to come to cover for sin, right? Yeah. It's symbolic that blood has to be spilt to cover your sin, um, all pointing to Christ, right? This is a ritual cleansing pot. Mm-hmm. This is what people would come in, they'd wash their hands with. Okay. So priests would, would have this, right? So, but not just priests. Like this was for a lot of people. So really what oh. you can deduce from this is, is two things, is that either the family who's getting married is extremely rich or they're marrying into a Levite priestly family. Okay. Right. Um, those are really mm-hmm. the two things you could deduce from it. Um, and what's interesting is in First Chronicles chapter 24, uh, was it verse 19? Um, it names um, Eliashib as the priestly um, Kohanim order 
um, being in Cana. There's so many words there I don't I know. understand. Essentially, what, what, what it, plainly, it just means that there were there was a family, a priestly identified and placed in Cana all the way back in First Chronicles 24. Okay. So we know even back then that there was a priestly present in Cana um, for a while, right? Okay. So this very well could be a priest's home. That's very significant because of what Jesus is about to do. Mm. Does that make sense? Um, so with that, um, man, we only gone through three verses. Um, verse four, <laughs> um, this is Jesus' response to his mother pretty much saying, hey, they're about to run out of wine. This is what he responds. He says, woman, why do you involve me? You know, I, I, I tried this on my wife. No, you didn't. No. You know, I was no, like, I'm trying to emulate Jesus in a speech. She's like, hey, I need you to take the trash out. I said, woman, why do you involve me? And I got, you know, a bowl thrown at my head. Um, so Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So what is, what's interesting here is first the, 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 the woman, that is not a disrespectful term. It's actually, it's kind of like similar to like, we were say ma'am, like now today, nowadays, mm-hmm. right? Like, Ma'am, you know, it's it's a term of respect. Um, but what's interesting about it, though, is um, th- he's speaking to his mother. So this was a term used for respect, but usually it's not what you would use for your mother. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Is it like fam- like familial type of term? Yeah, so, so, so he first says, woman, why do you involve me? Mm-hmm. So through all the things we just talked about, right? Like there's a good yeah. chance that this is his family involved in this wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, in my view, at least it's the most probable. Um, his family has direct connections, like their shame and honor is, is connected. Um, or even if it's just by the problem that he created the problem, but they have a connection to this problem. Mm-hmm. He says, why are you involving me? So you would think in the very human term, she's like, I'm involving you. Because you're part of this family, you're the head of this household. Yeah. You're part, you know, you created part of this problem with all, you and all your, you know, disciples coming here. I need your help, right? Like, yeah. That's kind of like the the obvious, right? But then he continues, and he that's says, a very like logical flow of like mm-hmm. why she would, right? Yeah, it's like, what, what do you mean? Why are you involving me? Um, and he says, my hour has not yet come. So what he's doing is what you see him using the term woman, and then why are you involving me with all those other cultural aspects? Um, of this conversation, it, it's, it's very what Jesus is starting to do is separate himself from his family, like his mm-hmm. blood family, because mm-hmm. he's saying, I'm in ministry for my my family, Israel, the family of God. Yeah. Right? It, it's kind of like there's a separation of, um, there's not special treatment for you by blood because I am here for all of Israel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um when he says, my hour has not yet come, well, his hour for what? That that term is used over and over and over in John, describing his hour of glorification, again, the cross. Mm-hmm. Right? So she's essentially, he's like, my hour of glorification has not come yet. Well, what does that have to do with here? Why is he mentioning that? Because culturally speaking, for them to be, what, what, what Jesus' mother is really asking him in practical terms, is not just simply running out of wine, you know, get us more wine. What she is saying is that you need to save them from their shame. Mm-hmm. You need to come help us save them from dishonor, mm-hmm. save them from their embarrassment, save them from, you know, everything that's about to happen. And he says, I am going to save them from their shame. But my hour to do that has not yet come. Cause when I save them from their shame, 
that's the cross. Thank you for that, Ryan. So we're going to go ahead and pause right here for this week. So uh, we still have another about an hour worth of discussion that we had. It went way longer than we thought, right? Uh, But I hope you'll join us next week for the second half of this discussion. But before you go, I'd like to remind you about the Facebook page, remind you about, oh, well, I guess, so Real Bible Stories. If you search Real Bible Stories on Facebook, you'll find us. Go ahead and like that page. Please leave a comment um, and join in the conversation. Ask any questions you want. Uh, Ryan or myself or Selena will jump in there and we'll engage with you. If you're in the Twin Eye Palms area, come hang out at Palms Baptist Church and we'll engage with you there as well. We'd love to pray with you, hang out with you, uh, get to know you better. And uh, we always love hearing your feedback or any comments or questions that you have. So uh, thank you for joining us this week for Real Bible Stories. And we will see you for the second half of this discussion next week. Thank you for tuning in to Real Bible Stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to leave a review, share, and subscribe to be notified each week when we upload new episodes. Real Bible Stories is produced in partnership with Palm Church in 29 Palms, California. If you would like more information or want to check out archived sermons and Bible studies, please check out the church website at palmsbaptistchurch.com or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Real Bible Stories can be found wherever podcasts are found.